All right, let's, uh, let's, I think we can begin, right? Uh, yeah, it's, yes, time to get started. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Rabbi Silver's class on Nazir. Um, as usual, uh, I have invited everyone to be a panelist so we can see your faces and you can unmute to ask questions, uh, which we'll be stopping for every now and again. Um, and in the meantime, you can, you know, put any questions you have in the chat and I'll make sure those get to Rabbi Silver. Um, okay, I think that's- Thank you very much for that. Um, okay, uh, I just want to complete to because there's always more to say, but to one, one final observation about the chapter in the Torah that speaks of the Nazir, which of course is chapter six of the book of Bamidbar. Um, just an observation. I we, we really noticed that the sixth chapter of the book of Bamidbar, which deal, deals almost exclusively with the Nazir, with the exception of the last several verses that have the Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing, that there's more said about the way the Nazir completes the vow than there is about the actual description of what the Nazir uh, is, in fact. By is, I mean the various restrictions upon the Nazir. And the Torah has this in two different stages in chapter six. The first, the Torah speaks about what happens if the Nazir in the middle of the vow, the Nazarite vow, comes in contact with a, uh, with a, with a corpse. Um, in that case, the Torah says that the Nazir, in a sense, starts over again. Everything that happened, all the days that have been counted till now, they are, they don't count. And the Nazir has to start a new, a new count. Um, and the Torah um, says that, um, this is found in chapter six, um, uh, verse number nine, if it's unexpectedly, uh, I, uh, someone dies, the Timei Rosh Nizro, and the, literally the head of the Nazir becomes Tamei, the Gilach Rosho, Biyom Torato, Biyom Hashri Yigal Chedo. So then, if you come in contact with a corpse in the Torah, it makes this explicit later on, you have to count seven days for purification. On the third day and the seventh day, there's the sprinkling of the ashes of the Parad, the red Paraduma. And on the seventh day, the Torah says, the Nazir uh, cuts, cuts his hair, his hair, her hair. And on the eighth day, the Nazir brings sacrifices, two birds to the Kohen. One of them will be for a chatat, usually translated as a sin offering. And one is for a burnt offering in Olah. That's verse number 11. The Kiddashed Rosho by Yomahu, and on that day his head will be literally sanctified. And then the Hizil Hashem at Yemen Israel, then he shall again, once again, make another vow and dedicate his, his days as an Azir to God. And he brings a sin offering. And the Vyayomim or Rishonim Yipu, all the first days don't count, they literally fall. Um, they don't count uh, because his his Nazarite status had been 
become impure. So the first of all, so there's three sacrifices that Benazir has to start all over again. And it would appear from the Chumash, always starts over again if Benazir becomes Tameh. That is to say, if Benazir drinks wine, there's no sense in the Chumash that you start over again. Only if you become Tameh, ritually impure. Now, when we study, and hope looking forward to studying Mishnah of Nazir, it's part of the much larger Rifka Rosenwein Mishnah project. I plan to teach Mishnah and hope to, hope to teach a, a fair amount of Mishnah, very interesting stuff, and comparing the Mishnah to what it says in the Torah. It's all fascinating. But what is interesting over here is that the Torah seems to three sacrifices, the Chata, the Ola, and then the Asham. So what's curious is that the Torah breaks them into two parts. First, it says that you bring two sacrifices, the sin offering. I'm translating chatot as a sin offering, even though I'm not sure that's the best translation, and the burnt offering, and they're a pair. It's two birds. They come as a pair. And they come as a pair, and this, then this seems to, um, this is somehow an atonement of sorts for having sinned. I think literally, it probably means having sinned, what is the sin? It wasn't his fault. He, it, was, it was accidental. Came into contact with the corpse. But whatever it is, it, it atones for the status which he has as a result of coming into contact with the dead. And then he starts over again. And when he starts over again, he, he, we're told, he brings another offering, Keves ben Shnatovi Asham. Brings an Asham offering. What it sounds like in the Chumash is that of these three sacrifices, they, they serve two different functions. One is somehow to atone, as it were, and I'll come back to that in a minute, for what happened in the past. But the second seems to be connected to studying the new, the, the new Nazarite vow. He has to start over again. Um, what I'm wondering about in terms of atoning, because what kind of sin is there? I'm wondering something else, whether the first two offerings of the Chatot and the Ola, the pair of offerings, are not so much about literally sin, because it wasn't his fault, but it's more a sense of completion. In other words, how does one out to be in the Talmud, the standard Nazarite was 30 days. And then let's say on day 21, she becomes stomach. So now you have to start over again. But, um, but what about those first 21 days? They don't count the 30 days. But, but do they count in the fact, because the did keep the Nazarite vow for 21 day, 21st day, and invert came in contact with, with that which uh, makes you start all over again. What I'm wondering about is one way to understand it is, if you took the Nazarite vow and you became Tameh, okay, that with, 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 with becoming Tameh, that Nazarite vow ends and you are required to do a new one, to start all over again. But the point is that it's not that those first 20 to 21 days you weren't a Nazir. You were a Nazir, but you're a Nazir who didn't complete the vow of, 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 of Nazirut. Perhaps that's what's going on, that the two offerings are a completion, the first two, complete what you've done in the past, which allows you to start over. And then the, the Ashram offering is what launches, in a sense, or is connected to the, the starting again of the Nazarite vow. In any event, it's a complicated procedure. You bring three sacrifices if you inadvertently came in contact with the dead. 
That's if you come in contact with the dead and the vow is suspended, you start over again. But the end of the, the end of this chapter, or the last piece of the chapter that deals with the Nazir, what about when you successfully complete the Nazarite vow? So here it's very curious. Here, once again, the Torah requires three sacrifices. And this begins in verse number uh, 20, uh, verse number 13. This is the law, the ritual for the Nazir. When the Nazir completes the vow, you have Vioto. He literally, I shall bring it. Bring what? Maybe bring himself. And then there are three sacrifices once again. And here it's very curious. So the first is, you bring a Kevis. You bring a uh, so a lamb, male lamb, without blemish for a burnt offering for an ola, and then you bring kavsa achat bashinata to be malichatat, and you bring a female uh, a you, female lamb, for the sin offering. That is standard in the book of Vayikra. That was those are standard sacrifices, and now in addition to these two sacrifices, once again the pair of chatat and ola. You bring a third sacrifice as well, and you bring a ram for a shlamim. Shlamim is the sacrifice in which the person that brings it eats part of it, the Kohen gets part of it, and God gets part of it. So we know of the shlamim, it's also listed in the beginning of the book of Ayekra, but here there's something very curious about the third sacrifice. Because the Torah says, uh, you bring, in addition, a basket of unleavened cakes of choice flour with oil mixed in and wafers, unleavened wafers with oil and the proper meal offerings and libations called the mincha. So what's interesting is when the Torah as this is bringing the boat, sounds like I say twenty matzot, and bringing the stand mincha offering, the wine and the and the and the oil. Is this is this is this the mincha is offered brought can be brought by itself, but in conjunction with another sacrifice. So it sounds like over here, because if you keep reading in verse sixteen, vikrivakalein lefnei Hashem biyasot chatoto biyatolato. So the, the priest will bring two sacrifices, the, the chatot and the olaf, which are standard. There's nothing special about them. Two sacrifices. Now you get to the, the third sacrifice, the shlamim. So the Torah then says in verse number 17 that this ram is brought as a shlamim together with the, the matzah together with the basket of matzah. So it sounds like the basket of matzah is accompanying the shlamim, as are the mincha, the libations, and the mincha, the flower offerings seem like they're connected to the shlamim sacrifices. Now, what's interesting about this is that if you think about the shlamim sacrifice, do we have a shlamim, assuming that the matzah is connected to the sacrifice, do we have 
an example of a shramim sacrifice which is brought together with, with matzah? And the answer is we do have one that's brought together with matzah. And it's an interesting sacrifice. It's called the Korban Todah, a Thanksgiving sacrifice. The Thanksgiving sacrifice is a shlamim. The, the, the person bringing it eats part of it. The priest gets part of it, part of the sacrifice on the altar. But the Torah says that when you bring the Thanksgiving sacrifice, you bring it with 40 matzot, 30 of which are matzot, and one of which, surprisingly, is actually chametz. Usually speaking, chametz is not sacrificed on the altar. The Torah says, do not bring, do not bring chametz on, the, on my altar. There are two exceptions. And one of those exceptions is the karban toda, the Thanksgiving offering. So it sounds like when you read this shlamim, it sounds like it's a very special sacrifice because first of all, it's brought together with matzah. Okay, there's no chametz, but it comes together with bread. And on top of that, in, the, in verse number uh, 18, and take the hair from his head and place under the, under the fire, on the fire, which is under the shlamim sacrifice. So it sounds like the shlamim is the central sacrifice. And that's actually very interesting. Because you place the hair, one might say you're sacrificing your hair. You the nose sacrifices the hair, but in conjunction with the shlamim sacrifice. So if we think about this for a moment, just want to put out there the question: we you, you we see here the, the, the ritual of sacrifice is very interesting and all kinds of complications. What immediately strikes us, and not just us, but others as well, is that it bears a resemblance different from, but a resemblance to the shlamim, uh, the, 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 the sacrifice called the toda, which is a subset of shlamim, the thanksgiving offering. Now there's another, another continuation in verse 19, which also suggests to us that the shlamim is the critical sacrifice. Because in the next part, in verse 19, something else very special about this Nazarite shlamim sacrifice, which is, now we have another wrinkle over here. The priest takes the shoulder, the zroa, the shoulder of the ram, which has been boiled, one, one unleavened cake and one wafer, and places them on the hands of the Nazarites after the Nazarite has cut his hair. And the next verse, in verse number 20, it says, um, in verse 20, it says, the priest takes this uh, shoulder, the shoulder from the sacrifice, one matzah from one, one matzah and one wafer, waves them, and then after waving them, they go to the priest. In addition to the chazer and shok, in addition to the um, the breast and the thigh. So, in other words, it's like this: 
in, in, in the Torah, it says explicitly, when you bring, for example, the Shabbim sacrifice, the priest gets from every sacrifice, it's called Chazev Vishok, breast and thigh. And in this sacrifice, the priest gets an additional something. In addition to the breast and the thigh, the priest gets the, um, the zroa. Here they translate the shoulder. So there's something special. You also have the waving. In other words, the shulabim sacrifice, part of it goes to the priest, beyond what the priest usually gets. The priest gets the, the shoulder, and the priest also gets one of the set of wafers and one of the set of cakes. That's identical to the toda sacrifice. Also in the toda, there are 40 breads with the toda, and the priest gets four of them. And now the question is, what do we make of all this? It is clear that the shlamim sacrifice is the critical sacrifice here, because the other two are perfectly standard. And over here, we have all kinds of variations, but what do we make of it? After that, the Nazir may drink wine. It's not clear to me whether the Nazir should drink wine as part of the ritual, or the Nazir may drink wine. The Talmud understands that the Nazir may drink wine, but the truth is when you read the Chumash, it's not clear. So here's the point I like to make about this, about this rather complicated procedure. As I said, this chapter spends more time about how you complete the Nazarite vow than it does about the nature of the Nazarite vow. Um, but I'd like to just point out, and maybe it's obvious to everybody about that the more the tremendous emphasis on A, the fact that this is a vow which is temporary. A lot of time spent on how you complete it. It's not something you do permanently in the Torah. In the Torah, you do it for a particular amount of time. And the time you count out the time. Oh. Well, we lost. Temporary situation. What? We weren't here. I'm not hearing what? We didn't hear you. You froze for a second. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, I'm back now. Okay, well, I will just repeat that it's first of all a temporary situation. And number two, what I find very interesting is there's a tremendous emphasis over here on the role that the priest plays. And if we think about it, look at the, if you look at this chapter six, what's interesting is that about the Nazir, the chapter that precedes it is also about the priest. The chapter that precedes it is about the man who is jealous of his wife or suspects his wife. And the way you resolve that conflict is by bringing the woman to the Kohen. And the Kohen goes through this ritual with the, with the water, etc., And then either the woman is found innocent, in which case they can resume their relationship, or she's found guilty, in which case dire consequences will follow. That's what precedes chapter six, the, the Nazir. And then what follows the Nazir at the end of chapter six is Birkat Kohanim, is the priestly blessing. So you have three consecutive Parshiot in the Torah, in which the Kohen is at the center. And the point I would like to make about the Kohen being at the center, I mean, one could make the argument that this is a set of stories in which wants to elevate the role of the priest. But I prefer to a different understanding of it, which is that the priest in this book, 
the priest in the book of Bamidbar plays a very important role. And that is that the priest is uh, working in what is the central arena of the Jewish people. Remember that the book of Bamidbar begins by setting up the, the camp, the way the camp uh, travels in the desert. At the center, literally the center of the camp is the, is the Mishkan. And the Mishkan is a communal center. It doesn't belong to any tribe. It belongs to everybody. It's, it's, what, it's what unifies the people. So the person who's the unifier of the people or the group that unifies the people, that's their role, are the priests. It's interesting that in the Midrashic tradition or Talmudic tradition, Aaron is seen as the great peacemaker. And um, that's because the Mishkan is in theory, the, the, the place that everybody can feel connected to. Um, in the book of Bamidbar, there's a tension between the Mishkan as one, one people, one central people. But then the book of Bamidbar is also about the tribes. The very, in fact, the very next chapter talks about each individual tribe, what sacrifice they brought on the day that the Mishkan was, was established. And it's exactly the same, it's repeated 12 times. To emphasize, I think, that it's, yes, they bring exactly the same sacrifice, but they're all different because they're all different tribes. So the nation consists of 12 tribes, but the nation also consists of one particular central location to which everybody is attached. And my larger point here is that one can read the story of the Chumash in the following way, that the Nazir is somebody who decides to be a high priest, even though the Nazir is not a high priest. There's someone who's she's uh, in the tribe of Naftali or something. One day she wakes up and says, I want to be on the level of the high priest. I want to be Kodesh Hashem. So you can do that temporarily, but you are actually stepping out of your place. You're in the wrong place. So you, in order, what's important is you can step out temporarily, but you have to come back to the people. And coming back to the people, the central location, which is the location, is in fact the Mishkan. It's the place where all of Israel should feel connected. So that's the role of the priest over here. The role of the priest is to try to try to make sure that everybody can stay together, which may even be the role of the priest in the Sota story. Because there, perhaps the Torah says, man suspects his wife. We have a way, if she's not guilty, that she will be vindicated and then they can resume their relationship. That perhaps is what the Torah is getting at. So in any event, the point over here would be that the big emphasis in this chapter is that there is something problematic about the Nazir for, for this chapter, because the Nazir is, is abandoning or leaving his or her post. And the only way you can validate it is in fact, if you uh, make it a temporary vow and come back. And then when you do that, maybe perhaps upon, upon, upon successfully completing the vow, because in the middle of the chapter, it talks about if you don't successfully complete the vow. But when you do successfully complete the vow, then the key sacrifice that you bring is a kind of thanksgiving offering. Uh, maybe gratitude for a, the ability to be a Nazir, for allowing me to step out of the community on a temporary basis. And secondly, thank you for, um, for allowing me to be holy. Torah calls the Nazir holy. And thank you for allowing me to successfully complete it in the sense there are many pitfalls. 
But I'm so glad that I was able to take a make a make a vow, whatever the length of time is. The Torah never says, it's, but it is temporary. And whatever it was, a month, I'm a year, whatever. I'm very grateful at the end to have successfully completed. I'm grateful to God. Thank you for assisting me, enabling me to complete the vow. So my point is just to make this point once again, that in the Chumash, when you read it, the Nazir is in fact a temporary state of being. I wanted to raise one last point and I'll stop and take comments or questions, which is what I wonder about. The Torah says, this is Torah Nazir. This is the rule of the Nazir. Question. This is always a question when you read anything. What does the Torah assume about the reader? In other words, do we assume that we never heard of a Nazir before? Well, first time we're hearing it. So this is something called a Nazir. And this says the Torah is what a Nazir does, or what a Nazir has to, uh, has to observe. That's one way to read this chapter. Then there's another way to read the chapter that the Torah assumes that you know what a Nazir is. And then this Karo comes and says, you know about this Nazir, maybe you know from other cultures, maybe, maybe within Israel, who knows? But let me tell you, we all know about the Nazir, but this is the way the Nazir has to conduct herself or, or conduct himself. And that's very different than what the Torah is saying is making a point. You may know of the Nazir in other cultures, you may know of the story of Shimshon, you may know that Samuel may have been a Nazir, they were Nazirian for life. But we're telling you in the Chumash, that's not the standard operating procedure. The standard procedure is in fact to, um, to have a temporary vow. And more than that, and more than that, uh, the Torah also says it's a vow, something that you take on yourself. And more than that, I'll mention one last point before I stop, which is this. I remember reading a long time ago, hearing, and I looked, obviously preparing for the class, I looked it up again, there is a theory floating around there that the Nazir basically is some kind of warrior. Uh, there are some ancient Sumerian texts which talk about this uh, fellow who was a warrior. Shimshon was a great warrior. And the idea of the Nazir at, at its core was uh, one who fights the wars of God. And I wonder actually whether the Chumash over here, if we assume that that was the given at the time, if the Chumash over here is not in fact saying that it's not our conception of the Nazir. Our conception of the Nazir in this story, in this chapter, is a spiritual state where one wishes to be holy unto God by, by maybe as the Ramban says, by refraining from things that are ordinarily permissible to declare yourself holy unto God. And I say that perhaps because the Torah here, it's unusual. When the Torah introduces the Nazir, it says, Ish awisha ki nazir. Either man or woman who utters the vow of the Nazarite. And it's interesting that the Torah here singles out man or woman, that a woman can do it as well. Now, there may be other reasons to mention that a woman can do it. Because one might have thought, well, if you're declaring yourself a high priest, the high priest was a man. So there may be other reasons. But I'm wondering out loud if what the Torah isn't getting at is saying, listen, you may believe that it's about a warrior, but the women in the Bible are not, are not generally speaking warriors. They're not warriors, they're the men of the warriors. But this is not about being a warrior. This is about declaring oneself self holy unto God and that both men and women can do. So maybe the Chumash is going out of its way to, to counteract or contradict some thought. 
it's always a good question, and I have no answer. What is, and that's what Kasuto did with claims that these creation stories of the Torah are responding to earlier traditions and, and disputing them. So maybe over here as well, if we assume that the reader knows what a Nazir is, maybe we don't, but the reader knows what a Nazir is, and the Torah says, this is our conception of a Nazir. It's not a warrior, and it's not forever. And yes, it's to curl yourself wholly unto God. And if you successfully complete it, you should be grateful for the opportunity and grateful that you successfully completed it. But it is, in fact, temporary. But let me stop at this point before we jump to the next step, which is I want to begin with the story of Shimshon. Obviously, you can't talk about the Nazir without talking about Shimshon. But let me stop here for a moment and take either comments or questions. If there are any. Uh, is it possible, uh, based on what you said last week, that it's Tame versus Kadosh, uh, that the conception of Tame is Tame means temporarily, temporal, temporal, temporarily, temporality? Yes, things being temporary. Um, a as opposed to kadosh being eternal and this is he's a warrior for god in that he's trying on some level to get beyond the temporary nature of of whether it's humanity or or service to god uh and this is some effort so on the one hand it's it's this uh mixed it's a it's a chatat uh for trying to get beyond the status at the same time it's a gratitude of this effort at getting beyond the, being a warrior for god beyond the uh, temporariness of man it's certainly possible yeah i think that would fit in well with what we've discussed so far for, for the one who made this point uh, very forcefully and, and often was jacob milgram he has these tremendously lengthy works on, on Bayikra. And what his, his argument was that Kedusha and Tumor are opposites in the following sense. The claim he makes, I can't get into it now, the claim he makes is that things that are Kodesh the can affect if you touch them. Um, that which is sacred, it's kind of contagious. It sort of spreads. Don't go on, don't go on Harsinai because God, they have to keep keep your distance from Mount Sinai, um, because the the mountain has become holy. So if you touch the mountain, you'll be in danger or whatever. That somehow there's a dangerous ocean, or or it spreads. Kedusha can spread, and Tumba we know spreads. If you touch something, you become Tumay, right? And there's a whole gigantic discussion. It's a whole Seder Tarot in the Talmud that. Under what conditions the tumor can 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 infect somebody else? So that was one of Milgram's points. That when you look at the Torah, it sounds like tumor and kedusha actually can become can, can actually become contagious. So in other words, for, for positive, for negative, etc. That's his that's his argument. Uh, he, he spells it out in many places. I don't want to get into that, but anyway, your point is well taken. I think that again, it touches on what we have spoken about. That on one hand, we appreciate the attempt. Uh, we maybe even appreciate the fact that the person is Kodesh for that amount of time, as the Ramban says, it's the greatest thing. 
On the other hand, there's the problematics of A, leaving the community and B, what does it say about a person that wakes up one day and says, I wanna be the high priest? You know what I mean? There's something about it, which is somewhat audacious, I would say, one might even say um, self-centered. Um, I wanna, you know, so I think that's, that's where the tradition has this dispute basically, because they're, they're both picking up on something very basic about the nausea. Um, the point that I want to emphasize uh, just now is that the idea of returning, that the, the, the person at the center of the return is the person that ministers inside the great communal center for the Jewish people, which is the, uh, the Mishkan. In fact, I'll tell you, just before we start with Shimshon, that actually in, uh, in Parashat Baalotcha, which is chapter eight, go speak to Aaron and tell him when you light the candles, they should face the center. Um, and Rashi quotes a very famous medrash, which is the following, that when in chapter seven, all the various heads of the tribes came with their wagons and they gave these tremendous donations to the temple. That's chapter seven. And there's a description of each one, the wagons, what's in the wagons, the, the works. And then in chapter eight begins, tell him when he lights the candles, they should face the center. And the medrash says the following, says that Aaron was very upset because he saw all these guys coming with their big wagons. And here he is lighting and cleaning the menorah. Clean the menorah. He says, they're involved with these gigantic wagons, these tremendous gifts. And what am I doing? I'm basically just, I'm, I'm cleaning I'm, I'm the, the, the temple. To which, which God says, you know, he felt bad, basically. God says, don't feel so bad. You're, 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 you, uh, you, you lied and clean, and, and clean the menorah. But, but, but one way to understand the, what, what's bothering Aaron is that because the heads of the tribes, each one is represented. And what Aaron presents is the centrality of the Jewish people, that we are, that we are one people. And he sees this big to-do about the Nesim, each one brings the identical sacrifice, and the Torah gives each one about 10 verses. It's identical, it's repeated 12 times. Bothers him. He says, no, don't worry. Yeah, I vow a thing more. The Jewish people is Anyway, that's the Medrash, famous Medrash, what to say about it. But okay, let us begin now with Shimshon, because again, we're gonna focus on it's a big topic. We'll focus on the Mishnah in the future. But right now, Shimshon. So Shimshon is, of course, found in the Book of Shoftim. And his, his birth is recorded in the Book of Shoftim. And Shimshon is a fascinating study in its own right. It's one of the most fascinating characters of the Bible. It's also extremely interesting. And this is for the future. What does the Mishnah do with the story of Shimshon? The Mishnah is interesting how it works, how it understands Shimshon. Well, let's just start today with the story of Shimshon, spend at least a couple of weeks on Shimshon. It's like this, it says, chapter 13 begins that by Yosifu b'nei Yisrael asot rabbi b'nei Hashem, by Yedem Hashem b'yad plishtim rabbi'im shana. So the children of Israel, once again, uh, did evil in God's eyes, and God hands them over to the Philistines for 40 years. That's the first verse of chapter 13. Anybody who studied this book of, of Shoftim remembers this is a constant theme in the book. Israel sins, God sends an adversary against them. And typically the people cry out to God in help. God sends them 
a some kind of redeemer. It appears six or seven times throughout the book of Shoftim. Now there is a book, there's a well-known academic in Israel, his name is Yair Zakovich, very well-known, taught at Hebrew University, was a pupil of uh, Weiss, um, you know, who did it, uh, critical reading of the, of the text, very interesting fellow. And he has a book called Chaye Shimshon, The Life of Shimshon. And he, 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 he's very good at pointing out certain things in the story. But then the question is, do you actually understand the significance of them? No. It's a very important reading place. Because when you read the book of Shelfton, this is in chapter 13 of the book. And you notice something about, uh, about the introduction to Shimshon, which is that uh, the next verse says, There was a certain man from Tzara, from the tribe of Dan, his name was Manoah, his wife was barren, had born no children. And now the angels come to the woman and tell her you're gonna have a child. And this child is going to redeem Israel. This child will, will, will redeem Israel. So when you read this in the context of the book of Judges, something, something strikes us or should strike us. And I'll tell you what it is. And it's one of the keys here to understanding the Shimshon story. And that is what Zakovich missed. And when you miss this, you're not going to, well, he missed two things actually. But the first thing he missed is that something is missing over here. What's missing over here is what usually happens in the book of Judges, that after the people are handed over to the enemy, they cry out to God, and God sends some redeemer. But in this particular case, what's present is the sin and the punishment. And now we have the redeemer sent. What we don't have is the people crying out to God. That's what's missing. And you only notice it's, you would never notice it's missing. You cannot notice it's missing unless you read the whole book. What, why do you think it's missing? When you read the book and you know there's always a four parts and here there's only three, something is missing. So we ask ourselves the question, why don't the people cry out to God? And this becomes clear later in the Shimshon story. The people don't cry out to God. Later in the story, Shimshon is so fascinating. Later in the story, at one point, Shimshon is busy killing the Philistines. And the Philistines marshal an army to catch, catch Shimshon. And the tribe of Judah, the leading tribe of Judah, goes to Shimshon later on and says, listen, don't you know that the Philistines are our rulers? What are you making trouble for? And they say, we have to hand you over to the Philistines. So Shimshon says to them, maybe we'll come across it later. Shimshon says, don't kill me. We're not going to kill you. We're going to hand you over. He says, okay, hand me over. So they tie him up with ropes. They tie Shimshon with ropes and they leave. And then Shimshon breaks out of the ropes. He breaks out of the ropes. I believe there he takes the jawbone of an ass and he kills uh, what, a thousand Philistines or whatever. Um, but you see over there what the tribe of Judah said to Shimshon. What are you making trouble for? Don't you know that the Philistines are Moshalim Banu? They're the rulers. So what are you what are you what are you what are you starting trouble for? Um, that's found actually in chapter fifteen. 
Chapter 15, verse number 11. What are you making trouble for? You're putting us in jeopardy. Shimshot says, I do to them what they do to me. Now we've come to tie you up. Shimshot says, swear to me you will, you will not kill me yourself. No, no, we're not going to kill you. We're going to tie you up and hand you over. We're not going to kill you. So they tie him up with ropes. And now, here's the point. So now we understand our, our story of Shimshon. This is very important for us. The reason that the people do not cry out to God for help is obviously one reason. Because the people don't, people are very happy, apparently, or resigned to being where they are. The Philistines are ruling. They're the rulers. We're the subjects. Okay, that's how it is. We accept how it is. So the people don't cry out for help because the people have accepted the rule of the Philistines. That's what it, that's what it sounds like. And when Shimshon's making trouble, they say to Shimshon, don't you know the Philistines are the rulers? So now we come to what is the central question in the Samson story, the central question. And it reminds me, for those of us who read Sherlock Holmes, which I did many times, and in one of the first cases that Sherlock Holmes has, no, he's with Watson. Watson, of course, can't figure it out. So Holmes says to Watson, um, you know, the problem in this particular case was not there was no evidence. There were, there were no clues. It was the opposite. There were a lot of clues. And our job is to figure out when there are a lot of clues. The job is to figure out which is the main clue. I was thinking, I think about that all the time, actually. Because the point is the Samson, the Shimshon story raises a million questions. But the trick is, what is the main question in the Shimshon story? You're studying the book of, of Judges. What is the one primary question in the Shimshon story? And I'll tell you what it is without, without question. What it is, is there are many judges who redeem Israel. Why does God want the Redeemer to be a Nazir? That's the main question. Why does God insist on a Nazir? The angel comes to Mrs. Manoach and says, your son's going to be a Nazir, and he's going to redeem Israel. Why a Nazir? Why can't you redeem Israel without being a Nazir? Who needs the Nazir? But the point of it is that if you understand the answer to that question, other things become very clear. So here's my suggestion. It's about who is the Nazir. Shimshon is not a Nazir as you have in the Torah. In the Torah, the Nazir in the Chumash is a standard person. Son of time. The Torah never said much, but it's not forever because the Torah out of time describing how you conclude the Nazarite vow. Shimshon, though, unlike the Torah's Nazir, will be a Nazir, I would say, from life, I would say before life, because he's a Nazir before he's born. He's born a Nazir. His mother is not allowed to drink wine, because if she drinks wine, the fetus is going to be sustained by the wine. That can't be. He's a Nazir from before birth. And the point of it is to be born a Nazir, and this is the critical point, the point is the Jewish people do not want to be redeemed from the Philistines. They don't care. But there is one who does care very much, apparently, and that's God. Because the Philistines are pushing around 
God's people, even though God's people don't care, but God cares. The Philistines have a history, a negative history when it comes to God, of mocking God, of taunting God. They captured the ark in the beginning of the book of Shmuel. They place it before Dagon. Uh, they take Saul's body and they mock Saul's dead body, hang it on the wall together with Jonathan's body. They're a nasty bunch. So it's true that Israel doesn't care one way or the other. Don't you know the Philistines are the kings? They're the rulers, but God cares. The problem is if usually you get somebody to represent God who actually cares. For example, in the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, there's one person who seems to care that the Jewish people are being beat up and his name is Moshe. He cares in general when people get beat up, when the weak people get beat up by the strong. So God goes to Moshe and says, listen, I want to go and save these people. I've seen, I've seen their suffering. I've seen the Oni. I've seen the, the, the slavery. And Moshe ultimately is receptive because Moshe himself was one who was, who was, who was called a, a redeemer. He saves the daughters of, of Reuel. But why did, wicked one? He kills the Egyptians beating the Jew. This is the taskmaster beating the slave. So God found someone. Maybe he's the only guy, but God found somebody who's interested at the end of the day in, 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 in God's cause. The problem in the Shimshon story, there is no Jew interested in God's cause. They're all perfectly happy with the Philistines. Okay, then God will get a redeemer who's not Jewish. That's called the Nazir. There's no sense in which Shimshon is Jewish. Shimshon is God's child, actually. That's a very important point. That's the key to the whole story. The Nazir, the, the ultimate Nazir, because the Nazir is one who separates from the people. But you always go back in the Chumash. What if you never go back, actually? What if you never return? What if you were born a Nazir? Until the day you die, you're a Nazir. And that's the story of Shimshon. There is no objective way that Shimshon, in the plain reading of the Tanakh, can be called a Jew. He doesn't live amongst them. He doesn't marry them. He doesn't engage with them. And the only interaction he has is when they try to hand them over to be killed. So the point is, what God says is, okay, the Jews don't want to be saved, but I want, I want to get back at my enemies. So how am I going to do that? I can't find a single Jew who actually cares. So I'll create one, not a Jew. I'll create a quasi-Jew of sorts, a Nazir. And here's the point about the Nazir. This is, if I'm, I, I take this to the, to the end. If we assume, just humor me for a moment, if we assume that the Nazir is God's child, which is the sense of the story. See, Zakovich noted, but he didn't actually understand it, that the, the nausea, the angels going to the woman. In other words, there's a sense over here, a hint at the fact. I might say it's biologically correct, but there is that sense that this is a child born from the woman and the angel. by And Mr. Manoch is out of the picture altogether. If we assume this, that the ultimate nausea is God's, is Kodesh Hashem, holy unto God, connected to God, then it, it leaves open the following possibility of the Nazir, that the Mishnah certainly rejects, that tradition certainly rejects it because it's a very antinomian tradition. And the Mishnah is not antinomian. The Mishnah is a very conservative document. But what it suggests to us is the, poss the following possibility. Look at Shimshon's life, the way he lives his life. He runs around essentially with a bunch of Philistine women. It's what he does. He uses those things as pretext to kill the Philistines. Now the question is, what does the book of Shoftim think of Shimshon? The Mishnah will condemn him. 
what does the book of what does the book of Shoftim think of Shemshot? So I wanted to suggest, and we'll jump back to chapter 13, that that as long as Shemshot carries out his mission, there's no condemnation of Shemshot. His mission is to kill God's enemies. That's his mission. In order to do this, he doesn't operate as Israel's representative. There's never a sense in the Shemshot story that he's killing the Philistines because he defends the Jews, because he's arguing for the Jews. The Jews benefit from it, that's true. But in the story though, he everything he does is personal. You notice he marries this Philistine woman then they trick her into redoing the, uh, the, the uh, riddle. Then he gets angry and kills 30 Philistines. And that's how the whole story works. As Shimshon said to the tribe of Judah when they want to hand him over, what are you making trouble for? I'm not making trouble for you, he says. I act to them the way they act to me. There's nothing to do with you. You're not involved here. It's me against me and the Philistines. That, that's where he lives. So my, my, the claim I'm making, which is, I think, a very interesting claim, we have to see as we proceed from Shimshon, that the book of Shoftim does not condemn him for this. By, by any standard morality or Jewish morality, his behavior is very problematic. I don't see it in any evidence in the text whatsoever until he meets Delilah. But until he meets Delilah, I see no evidence whatsoever that there is a condemnation of Shimshon. Now it raises actually, and I'll stop and take comments after this. It raises an extremely interesting question that, 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 the, that the halachas deal with. And it comes up all the time. Let's say, for example, let's say Israel, Israel has a very good spy network. And the, supposedly the Mossad has a great how does a lot of electronic information you can get? But in the old days, it was gotten by people. And the people that are going to give you information, basically, uh, are not always the nicest people in the world. Sometimes they're subject to blackmail, sometimes they pay them off or whatever it is. And often you can just imagine that you send a spy over to infiltrate into the enemy camp. And one way to infiltrate into the enemy camp is to establish all kinds of liaisons with various people on the other side, all kinds of romantic, so-called romantic connections, et cetera, which involve all kinds of behavior that from a purely halachic standpoint has got to be seen as extraordinarily problematic. But that's the way you get information. So the question is, what do you make of that? This is a question that the halachists wrestle with. What do you make of that kind of thing? And it comes in many different forms. Um, you know, conspiring with the enemy, sleeping with the enemy, to try to get some kind of favor to help people, to save people, etc., to get information, those kinds of questions. And to me, that's very much connected to the Shimshon story. In the Shimshon story, I would say, at least my understanding is that there's no condemnation of Shimshon because he has his own Shulchan Aruch. He, 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 has, he has his own set of rules. He works for God. He's connected to God. He's going to do whatever God wants him to do. And God wants him to fight the Philistines as God's representative, not as the people's representative, because he's not with the people. He's not with the Jews. He's born a Nazarite. That's the claim I'm going to make. So that's, I think it, we will see you may disagree with the claim. But let me say two things. First of all, I, I like it. The second of all, it's very interesting. And I think it's very true to the story. So that's, that's our beginning of the Shimshon story. But, but the topic is the nausea. And the claim is that the nausea, the ultimate nausea, if you really think about it, 
doesn't believe in the ultimate Nazir. But if you have, like Shimshon, an ultimate Nazir, in what sense is he Jewish? He's separated from the people before he's even born. He's not born a Jew who's a Nazir. That's, that's the Torah's Nazir. You're a regular person, you take a vow, 30 days, 60 days, a year. But that's not Shimshon. Shimshon has his own set of rules. In fact, you know he does, he has his own set of rules. He has his own set of rules about Nazir because he certainly comes in contact with the dead. In the Torah, that stops you at Zerus. You have to start over again. But Shimshon never starts over again. He's a Nazir from beginning to end. So it doesn't, doesn't prove, it, the Nazirut is who he is. The Nazir is who he is. I will get to all this later on. Let me stop here for a moment and take some comments or questions, if there are. Or in the uh, nothing that I see. Okay. Oh, nothing there. Okay. So well, let's go, let's go back to chapter thirteen and just start our little story over here. And um, I think it's something we need to think about. It's actually I, I find this extremely interesting idea. Um, anyway, let's just start with chapter thirteen. This is the when you think about the Bible, you think about a nausea. This is what we think about. I mean, there's no easily obvious nausea. But you know, the question is, it doesn't seem to conform to what the Torah says at all. Uh, it seems extremely different from what the Torah says. And that's you know one of the points I want to make about when we get later on, hopefully to the Mishnah, then we get to the rabbinic understanding. Had, what, 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 are the, what, what does the rabbinic rabbis do with this with this uh, Shimshon business? How does it relate to the Torah? So they have a totally different view. Everything centers on what the Torah says, and then we can discuss that. But anyway, let's just take a start with chapter 13 again, verse number two. Five. So they have, they have this man named Manoach. His wife has no children. Now verse three. So the angel comes to the woman, not to the man or not to both of them comes only to the woman by herself, okay? It says, listen, you have no children, be going to uh, become pregnant and give birth. Now the angel continues to talk. This is God's messenger. So here's interesting. First of all, the angel says to the woman, do not, yayin and sheikhar is what the Torah says the Nazir can't, can't drink. Don't have yayin and sheikhar. The, the, um, the uh, angel adds, curiously, don't eat anything which is forbidden. Now what's interesting is, tame in the Bible can mean two different things. It can mean something which is not kosher. In the book of Shemini, in Parsha Shemini, in Vayikra, it calls things you're not permitted to eat tamay. That's one kind, that's one definition of tamay. That has another meaning. Tamay means things which actually make you ritually impure. So what's interesting is over here, al-tochri called tamay, don't eat any, here they translate, do not eat anything unclean. So the point is, why is he telling you not to eat anything which is not kosher? Uh, you shouldn't be allowed to do that in any event. That's something which is not kosher. That's a problem in the text. Maybe what the angel is saying is, listen, 
make doubly sure you don't eat anything which is not kosher because whatever you eat is going to benefit this the the unborn the, the, the fetus the unborn child so don't do that but it is curious that the, it has the word tame because we know that the nausea can't come into contact with that which is makes you tame so maybe it means don't eat anything which would make you ritually impure because if you're ritually impure maybe it means this and somehow indirectly, you're making the, the fetus ritually impure. But the point is, the point is that uh, if it it doesn't say don't it doesn't say don't come in contact with, with the dead, because coming her coming in contact with the dead doesn't necessarily affect affect the fetus. But what you eat does affect the fetus. So the point is, apparently, don't drink wine while you're pregnant because. He's a Nazir even before he's born. That's the point. Not just when he's born. It, it, that's the next verse. He can't cut his hair. She can cut her hair. But he can't cut his hair. Why not? He's a, he's, the boy is to be a Nazirite from the womb. And he will begin to, to save Israel from the Philistines. So what's interesting here, let me just conclude with the following observation in the story. This is a story of a couple that have no children and the angel goes to the couple and says to the, in this case, the woman, doesn't talk to the husband, goes to the woman and says, you're gonna have a child. So there are two things that, two comments I wanna make about this. First is the obvious point that the angel goes to the woman and not to the man. Maybe next week, this, what, what is that about? That goes to the woman and not to the man. But here's the other point I wanted to make, which to reinforce my first point about Shimshon. There are plenty, there are several stories that we know of in the Torah of a childless couple. You're talking about Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and Jacob and Rachel. All three of those women are Akarot, have difficulty having children. In those cases, in all three cases, the women are trying to understand it or do something about it. Uh, Sarah gives her servant to Abraham as a wife. Uh, Isaac prays for Rebecca. And Rachel goes to Jacob and says, give me children or else I'll die. And Jacob criticizes her. And she gives her uh, servant to Jacob as a wife. I be built up through her. Then she trades for the mandrakes of her, her sister, fertility pill. And then I argued many times that the trophim or fertility god that she takes as well. In all these cases, somebody, the woman typically, tries to do something. In the case of Isaac, he prays for his wife. What's curious is over here, they do absolutely nothing. There's no sense in the story at all that they're actually entreating God. God is taking the initiative and in going to them. So my point is that it's parallel in, this, in, the, in the text to what I mentioned before. The people are not complaining about the Philistines either. There's absolutely, the people are very happy with the status quo or accepting of the status quo, both on the personal level with Manoach and Mrs. Manoach and on the communal level with the Philistines as, as the tribe of Judah said, what are you making trouble for? Philistines, are the, are, are, they're the boss. They're the ones in charge. So this, it reinforces this point that the people don't care. People are happy to 
things are the way they are or whatever, but God is taking the initiative. And my point about taking the initiative is that's why we want a Nazarite. Because the Nazarite is someone separated from the people even before he's born from the womb. This is God's child, as it were. And then I add, potentially, God's child answers only to God. The people have a whole set of rules. They have their, they have their Torah. But maybe the Nazarite has, has Torah Tanazir, has the Nazarite's own Torah, which is a different Torah. So I want to pick up on this thought next week uh, about the Shimsha of the Nazarite. And then uh, we have, if that the time remaining, maybe with more on Shimshon and then deal with Samuel, who was potentially also a Nazarite. His mother, Hannah, said, so, and there's some other stuff as well. We'll see uh, how much we can actually cover. Okay, I'll stop at this point. Are there any comments or questions before we conclude? So I'd like to uh, make one uh, comment that's in line with your saying that uh, Shimshon is the representative of God and so on, and Israel was not interested because Shim, as you pointed out, that Shimshon is frequently saying that he's repaying the plishtim for what they did to him. Right. Okay, but not to what they did to Israel. Right. And it, what they did, and as you said, what they did, they did to God. They mocked God. They you know, did, did, did all kinds of things that were against God and his, uh, his rule. And so Shimshon is saying not just that, oh, they were mean to me, but that they, I am acting on God's behalf because they, mis they, they were behaved improperly with God. I agree with you. And I'll tell you something else that actually also supports this idea. You know, people, the great warriors of Israel, I mean, the story of David and Goliath is, is unique. David fights one-on-one. -on -one. It's a one-on-one -on -one battle, David against Goliath. But typically, the great warriors are commanders in terms of the army. They have a whole army, and they, people, people are underneath them, and they marshal the troops, and they divide the troops up, and they're very strategic, etc. When you get to Shimshon, he has no army. He actually had an army, but they're not human beings. His army is, well, is basically nature, foxes, the jawbone of an ass. Uh, he's, even his name, Shemesh, he's part of the natural order. That's what it sounds like. He's, he has no armies, completely fights alone because he's fighting for God, with God, for God, etc. not for Israel. And there's never a single battle that he has, which he is, um, which he's aided by anybody with the lone exception of the last time when he dies, when he asked these, this lad who's with him in the, in, the, in the jail there to help him with something. Outside of that, he's completely a solo operator, which is, you know, very much uh, in line with the suggestion that he's not really fighting directly for the people at all. He does He's helping the people, but not, they may not even realize it, but he is a redeemer of Israel in a certain sense. But fundamentally, he's doing God's work and he uses the animals, the, the, the natural order. Those are his allies, no people. He's all alone. All right, let me next, we'll continue with this next week. He's one of the more fascinating characters of the Bible without question. Our topic was the Nazir. I really thought this was a very interesting idea about the Nazir. So we'll take maybe one more week with Shimshon. And then we'll move to two other potential Nazirim in the in the uh, in the Bible.
Um, again, if anybody has any comments or questions, it's dsober at drisha.org. Uh, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, looking forward to next week. <laughs>